we've had the heating fixed during the week and it's, it's, it's better than it's been for a long, long time, as you may have noticed. This morning we're going to consider the stilling of the storm. Stilling of the storm and it's in Luke chapter 8 verses 22 through to 25. Let's have a look at those verses now. Verse 22 in Luke chapter 8. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled, they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. Amen. So there you have it. It's a very short passage. Jesus boarding a ship on the lake, that is the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Gennesaret. So he gets on a ship with his disciples and they go out to sea. Next thing we see is that there's a storm, a terrible storm. I think it must have been bad because let's not forget that most of his disciples were, what were they? Fishermen. You'd think they'd be used to this kind of weather, this But they were afraid and Jesus was sleeping in the boat and they awoke him and Jesus calmed the storm. First of all, what I want to consider with you is the Lord is with his redeemed in the storms of life. Look again at verse 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake and they launched forth. Note that it was the Lord's idea to take a journey in a ship with his disciples. In other words, Jesus, he took them out to sea in a ship despite the dangers that lie ahead. We need not imagine that when the storm came, it took Jesus by surprise. He most certainly fully intended to take his disciples in what would turn out to be a very stormy situation. And I can't imagine that the wind and the storm were localised to that little bit of sea where his ship was and everywhere else was nice and calm. There would have been others on the Sea of Galilee who would have felt the force of the storm and the waves. The big difference was that the Lord was right there on that ship 
in the midst of the storm with his disciples when the storm arrived. He was with his disciples. The Bible abounds with examples of God being with his people in the midst of the storms that visit everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. The storms of life, they visit the godly and the ungodly alike. Such as the literal storm that we see in our passage on the Sea of Galilee. Again, it would have visited everybody not just the ship with Jesus and his disciples. And also there were those storms that are reserved just for Christians, not for everybody, but for Christians. I'm talking about the times of persecution that Christians may be called upon to suffer and to endure. For example, in the Old Testament book of Daniel, three godly men by the name of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego, they refused to bow down and worship a golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had erected. Consequently, they were cast into a fiery furnace. And when the king looked into the furnace, he saw not three, but four men. So the king, he he, he looked into the fiery furnace He saw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who had been cast into the furnace because they refused to bow down and worship his golden image. But they saw, but sorry, the king saw a fourth man like the son of God, we're told. Those three men survived the ordeal completely unscathed. And most of all, God was right there with them in the fiery furnace just as he was with his disciples in the ship on the Sea of Galilee. Secondly, why the storms? Why do we have these storms? I'm not just talking about the the, the stormy waters, the stormy weather. Why do we have storms? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul said, For by grace are ye saved, through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast therefore dear Christian your faith in Jesus is not something that you concocted within yourself again it goes back to what I was saying earlier on having been chosen elected before the foundation of the world In the fullness of time, God, he opened your heart to attend to the gospel of Christ and to believe in him. You who are trusting in Jesus now, having been chosen before the foundation of the world, you believe in Jesus because God gave you that faith in the first place. Otherwise you would never ever trust in Jesus as your saviour from sin. But also, the repentance that you showed towards God when you were saved and justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a a, a faith and a repentance that you continue to show, that repentance was also God-given. Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. 
the repentance that you have, dear Christian, when when you when you sin, when you do something wrong, that is a repentance that looks to the cross of Christ. And that is a God given repentance. Your God-given faith is strengthened in the uh, storms of life, such as when you are being persecuted for Christ's sake and when you're experiencing painful and difficult times that are common to both the righteous and the wicked in the world. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul said, Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Let's unpack that a little bit. Tribulation, the storms, terrible storms of life, they work patience, patience works experience, and experience hope. There's an order there, and this is what happens if you belong to Jesus. The storms come your way, and if you belong to Jesus, instead of getting in a terrible flap and um, and disappearing off the face of the earth and, and not being seen in church for, for the next ten weeks or whatever, your response as a Christian is to patiently submit to God's will for you as you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And that kind of response, that response where you look unto Jesus patiently with a God-given patience will be proof to who? That you really are a Christian. Maybe proof to others, but most of all, it will be proof to you. It will be proof to you that your confidence in the Son of God whom you profess to be your saviour, maybe you profess to be your saviour when you were baptised and you you said, I, I believe in Jesus, I believe he died for me. But then, when the storms come along, the tribulation, and you patiently wait on him, and you look unto Jesus to be with you in the storms, that is proof to you That experience, that whole experience, a very real experience, is proof to you that your faith is real. You have a genuine saving faith in Christ. And you really do have a heavenly hope and not some airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky hope that just evaporates as soon as the storms come. That you're not just a fair-weather Christian, in other words. The storms that God graciously gives you, if you can get your head round that one, God gives you those storms, the tribulations, far from being punishments, I'm talking to the Christians here, far from being punishments serve to purge out the sins that so easily ensnare us and detrimentally affect our walk and our communion with the Son of God. We need those tribulations. We really do. We need the storms of life. And they serve to wean you from the world, to purify you to to the end that you might be a partaker of the holiness of God. 
we've been looking at this on Wednesday evenings. That that helped me tremendously to prepare this morning's sermon. I find that there's a convergence of what we've been looking at on Wednesdays and what we have this morning. So when the, the storms come along, they, they're for your good. And they purge out the sins. They give you a, 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 to the end that you might have a closer walk and communion with God. And that you might be a partaker of the holiness of God. In other words, that you might grow in practical holiness as a new creature in Christ whom you trust and you desire to be more like him. The storms of life, God uses those storms as a means of chipping away at the rough edges, shaping you, moulding you, conforming you to the image of his son. And of course that work is never ever completed in this lifetime. But what is the alternative to that? If God does not put you into the refiner's fire, as a refiner um, puts precious metals, I don't know much about this, but gold and silver into a furnace to clear out the dross, all the rubbish. And the refiner, he looks, he continues to look at that precious metal in, in the furnace. And then when finally all the dross has gone and he can see his own reflection in that gold or silver, that's it. The job of refining the metal is done. And you can think of the refiner's fire as the storms of life. God putting you in the refiner's fire. God is the refiner. Getting rid of the dross, all the rubbish, all the things of this world that you're clinging to, the sins, the, the, the sins that so easily ensnare you and draw you back to the things of this world. God gets rid of it all in the storms of life. The storms of life, they encourage and they promote prayer, or at least they should do if you are trusting in Christ. They'll promote prayer, they will promote the reading of your Bible as you look unto Jesus. Because how else do you look unto Jesus? Well, yeah, you can walk along and you can think about him and that's a wonderful thing to do and meditate upon certain verses of scripture that you've committed to memory as you think about Jesus. But looking, opening your Bible, opening the Bible which is full of Jesus from cover to cover. And that's the thing to do when you're going through a storm. Pray to God, prayerfully read the scriptures as you look unto Jesus who is with you, dear Christian, in those storms. So, when you're drowning, or you think that you're drowning, because obviously things can be nowhere near as bad as they might appear to be at the time, when you think you're drowning in some kind of catastrophe, perhaps when you're being persecuted, or if it's God's will, not just being persecuted, But as is the case in parts of this world, when you feel the cold steel of a knife pressed against your throat, simply because 
you belong to Jesus. When that happens, you are to consider Jesus who endured such contradiction and opposition of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You don't want to do that when the storms come. Faint, and you don't have to. You just look unto Jesus. And his grace is sufficient for you. In the parable about the sower sowing his seed, Jesus spoke about those who profess faith in him, yet they do not endure when the storms come along. He said, The seed fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth, and when the sun was up they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. See, can you picture this? The sower's throwing his seed and it lands on very shallow soil. There's nowhere for the roots to go. They can't go down so the thing comes up very quickly. The plant goes very quickly. But because there's no root, as soon as the sun comes, they just wither away. There's, there's no roots. They can't draw on the water under the earth or anything. They just die. Jesus used that to illustrate the fair-weather Christians. He went on to explain that he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and with joy receiveth it. Yet have he not root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. In other words, when the storms come along, he's gone. Coming back to our passage, clearly the faith of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ was still very much in its infancy and would remain so until after his sacrificial death at the cross and his triumphal resurrection. Their faith was very much in, they were his disciples, but all you have to do is is look at the passage here and look at verse 24. They came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Where's the faith? So, not a lot of faith in evidence there. In verse 25, Jesus said to his disciples, Where is your faith? It's not that they didn't have any faith, and we know that to be the case, not from this passage, but from... Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's account of events, Jesus is recorded as saying to his disciples, O ye of little faith. Not O ye of no faith, but O ye of little faith. (laughs) That's good. That's good. They did have some faith, but as I say, it was in its infancy. So they had faith and, and praise God now, and forevermore, if you have faith in Jesus, even if it's just a little faith, praise God for that little faith that God has given you. Remember again, you it's not something that you can um, produce within yourself. 
Faith is God-given and it's by the grace of God. The trouble is that the disciples were not exercising their little faith. There was no evidence of it. I can't see any evidence of their faith there, yet they did have some faith. In Mark's account of what happened, the disciples thought that Jesus did not care that they were going to die. That really is something. Can you imagine that? The disciples thinking that Jesus didn't care about them. How wrong they were when you think that Jesus loved his disciples so much so that ultimately he would sacrificially die on a cross. That he would lay down his life bearing away their sins. And yet they said, do you not care that we perish? Of all the people in all the ships on the Sea of Galilee during that great storm, the disciples had every reason to remain calm. And that is because Jesus was right there with them. And even if he hadn't been with them in body, in the ship, they, as his disciples, ought not to have been afraid like that. What's the application for us? As for you, dear Christian, no matter how real or how solid you might imagine your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be, if God did not take you into the various storms, what do you think would happen if if your life was one big walk in the park? From day to day you just skipped along singing, I am H-A-P-P-Y. living in cloud cuckoo land. The faith that you, you you profess would not be put to the test, would it? Although you've, you've professed faith in Jesus, you've been baptised in Christ, you've put on Christ, or, or so you claim, it's never going to be put to the test, that faith. And God doesn't leave us like that. He gives us assurances. He gives us rock-solid assurances that our faith is real, that we do have a God-given faith. And it's not about just feeling nice and fuzzy inside um, and singing nice choruses about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's much more to it, much more. If you were not, if your faith was not put to the test in the storms of life, the reality might just be that your faith is not even little, but rather it is non-existence. And all along, you have perhaps been living off someone else's faith and that you have no real faith of your own. Maybe you're just living off mum's faith or your, your, your father's faith or, or, or whatever. Or you've signed a decision slip, you've said a sinner's prayer, but really there hasn't been a work of God within you. Can you see how important it is to have the storms of life? When it comes to suffering for righteousness sake, does the very thought of suffering cause you to perhaps hide your light? I'm still talking to the Christians here. The the, the very thought of suffering and, and entering into a storm, does that cause you to hide your light 
under a bushel. In other words, to hide your faith. To put it on hold, just for the time being, until the storm has passed. If it does, that is not a good sign. Because a genuine Christian faith is not something that you can switch on and off all the time. You either have it or you don't. Take the three godly men in the book of Daniel that I mentioned earlier, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They could have easily put their faith on hold and avoided being cast into that fiery furnace. Remember, what they were required to do was bow down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had set up. Let's face it, they could have pretended. Very easy to do. They could have thought, well, blow that, I'm not going in a fire. So, they didn't even have to kneel down, their knees could have just buckled. They could have gone down on their, on their bellies, pretended to worship the image and perhaps recited their favourite um, psalm in their heads and, and thought, well, that's it. At least I'm reciting a psalm, so that makes things all right. They could have done anything. So, but they didn't. Instead, they said to the king, if it be so... Our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But it doesn't end there. So they've said if if God wants to, he can deliver us out of the furnace. Then they went on to say, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So much pressure these days to bow the knee to Caesar. And we're not to do that. I can't order you not to do that, but a a God-given faith. With a God-given faith, what do you do? You look unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of your faith. You consider him who endured the contradiction and the opposition of sinners But anyway, back to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. What followed for them, they were cast into the furnace and they had a sweet time of communion with none other none other than the Son of God in the midst of that furnace. Unlike the disciples who, despite being fishermen, were afraid of the storm that they were in and they accused Jesus of not caring for them. What a difference there. Huge difference. Thirdly, what manner of man is Jesus? What manner of man is Jesus? In the passage that we have before us, what comes across very clearly is the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The humanity there. Look at verse 23. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. Jesus fell asleep. I don't imagine he was pretending to sleep there. We take the word of God as it is there. He fell asleep. I won't read any more into it than that. So, Jesus slept in the ship 
Elsewhere in the Bible we can read about Jesus being thirsty. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32, we can read about a man called Simon of Cyrene, who was made to carry the Lord's cross to the place of execution. One can only assume that Jesus had become too weak and too tired to carry the cross any further himself. He'd already lost a lot of blood, having been beaten and scourged. And so Simon carried his cross for him. We can read about the blood of Jesus being poured out and about him dying on a wooden cross that he had been nailed to. All of this speaks of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But equally, we can see the divinity of Jesus, that he is God. We can see it shining forth from the pages of the Bible, including here in our passage. After all, only God is able to rebuke the wind and the seas and get a response from them. Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus said, Peace, be still. And they did precisely that. Look at verse 24 in our passage where it is written, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging water again, saying, peace be still, when you look at Mark's gospel. And they ceased, and there was a calm. How about that? Even the wind and the seas obey the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. They obey the word of his power, or the utterance of his omnipotence. Even a dead man by the name of Lazarus rose from the dead and came out of his tomb when Jesus spoke to him saying, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days and his body began to stink, rose up and he came forth from his tomb. And presumably Jesus had turned back the clock and he was no longer undergoing decomposition or whatever. Make no mistake about it, Jesus the Nazarene who was born in Bethlehem and who slept in a ship is the Son of God who is always with all whom he has redeemed with his own precious blood. He is with them always, even in the storms of life and especially so. That is when you have your sweet, the, the sweetest communion with Jesus in the storms of life. And I say that and I know only too well that various folk in here today are in various storms at the moment. Going through challenges, big challenges. And this, if ever there was a time, is a time for you to look unto Jesus. The author, the finisher, the perfecter of your faith. Finally, to the Christians I'll say that when you next find yourself in a terrible storm, whether it be some kind of tragedy or profoundly distressful situation, perhaps the loss of a loved one or financial loss or serious health issues, 
or else you experience persecution or the threat of persecution if you dare to say or do something that will inevitably incur the wrath of ungodly men who hate Jesus. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on those things, all those things, those things which include being lovely, what does that make you think of? When you're going through the storms, whatsoever things are true, never mind what is true, who is true, whatsoever things are honest, who is honest? Whatsoever things are just, who is just? Who is righteous? Whatsoever things are pure, who comes to mind as being pure? Whatsoever things are lovely, who is lovely, dear Christian? That's an easy one, isn't it? Whatsoever things are of good report, who is of good report? If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. In other words, when the storms come your way, consider your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. That's the promise of God there. As for the rest of you, those who are not looking unto Jesus in the storms of life, Just look at the question that you are left with at the end of the passage, the end of verse 25. Look at it now. What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water and they obey him. Now, if you don't know the answer to that one, it's not rocket science, but if you don't know the answer to that one, what manner of man is this? You might like to go to the seafront after this service, not far, it's only a couple of minutes away, and see if you can get the wind and the sea to obey you. You can shout your head off at the wind and the sea. Are they going to obey you? Of course they're not. Far better would be for you to repent, to receive the man who is God, as your saviour from sin, and to know that he is with you in every situation, that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you. If you don't do that, you will one day find that even the most severe storms that you go through in this life are a breeze, and that they are a walk in the park compared with the final calamity of being cast into hellfire and being eternally punished, which will, of course, be your just reward for your rebellion against God and, most of all, for your rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, repent, trust in Jesus as the God of your salvation and take shelter in him. Amen.